<laughs> All right. Praise God. Hebrews chapter 2. You return there now this morning. We are continuing to dig into this gold mine of this incredible, incredible, precious, precious treasure of the book of Hebrews. And as we have said, as we enter into this wonderful gold mine, sometimes you just see nuggets lying on the ground. And they're there just to pick up. And then some of them are there that are buried. And you have to dig a little. And this morning we have some of both as we are in this passage in Hebrews chapter 2. So turn back to our text. And we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 13 this morning as we're continuing to make this journey through this great Wonderful book of the Bible. Now, all week long, of course, we have heard the word super, haven't we? It's super. Uh, build up to Super Sunday. Super Sunday. And aren't you thankful that for believers, every Sunday is super? Aren't you grateful for that? It's super. And we can just say about all that hype what we say. Well, la-dee-da, okay? Now, some of you thought he missed it this year. And some of the new folks or guests are thinking, what just happened there? What was that, what was that all about? Well, uh, years ago I gave my verdict on the Super Bowl as, as something that's supposed to be beyond uh, special, uh, but compared to what we celebrate in Christ every Sunday, it's sort of la-di-da, don't you think? As we celebrate the risen Savior. But aren't you thankful that as believers truly every Sunday is super? Every Sunday is super, and that every Sunday we can celebrate, regardless of what's going on during the week, if you're a Christian, we can celebrate our team wins, right? Our team wins because of our super Savior. Because of our super Savior, our team wins. And the focus of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better. Jesus is better, so don't settle for less. And the writer of Hebrews, speaking to first century Christians, is speaking to us as 21st century Christians. Jesus is better than anything. Don't turn back. Don't turn away. Don't settle for less. And we could just say today, Jesus is super. Jesus is super. Don't settle for less. And so let's review here a little bit. In the opening verses here, this letter uh, the writer said that jesus is superior that's the idea he's not just better he is superior we saw a few weeks ago that jesus is superior to the prophets uh, they were the messengers but jesus is the message he is the message and then beginning at verse 4 of chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 2 verse 4 the theme here is that Jesus is superior to the angels. He's superior to the angels. Uh, they are servants, but he is the son. He is superior to the angels. There's no one like him. And this morning, what we're going to see is that Jesus is superior to all mankind. He is superior to all mankind. And he is... Superman. He is Superman. And that's what I want us to see this morning. Jesus is superior to all. 
he yet acts on behalf of all mankind. Jesus is the superman. And he acts on behalf of all mankind. Now, the theme of what we've read this morning is simply this, and I'll summarize it, and we're just going to open up this passage, walk through it. We're going to have to dig a little, but I believe there's some real treasure for us here. Jesus Christ, God's Son, is the Superman who rescues all the children of God. That's the key thought that the writer has given us here. Jesus Christ, God's Son, is, is man. He is, though, beyond all men. He's the superman. And he rescues all the children of God. That's God's super plan. And Jesus is God's true Superman who acts on behalf of all of God's children. Now, that means that God has a super plan. And what I want you to see is that God had a super intention. The Lord had an intention for why he made mankind. And that's where the author begins here in verse 5. He begins by talking about what was God's intention for mankind what was God's intention verse 5 says this for it was not to the angels he's just talked about angels remember he says it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking now notice that the intent of God for mankind is for the world to come, to be subjected. What's that mean? To be under dominion, to to be ruled and governed. God's intent was for the world to come, to be under the dominion, under the care, under the governance, not of angels, not of angels, but of man. Now, notice, world to come here takes us back to chapter 1. Look back at chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. The author here sort of skips from time to time. We don't see the parentheses in a text. But he's been talking about what is to come. Verse 10, he said, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Now notice, he says here that the earth will be changed. Do you notice that in verse number 12? He says it's going to be like a robe that's going to be rolled up. It's going to be changed. It's going to be renewed. This means there's going to be a new creation. This is the world to come that the author is talking about. Verse 5, for it was not to the angels that God has subjected the world to come. You see, this world is not the final world. 
This world is going to pass away. It's going to be rolled up like, like, a, like a carpet. It's going to be changed and renewed. And guess what? The Lord says that world is not going to be under the dominion of angels. That world to come is not going to be ruled and overseen by the angels. But that world to come is going to be an inhabited world under the dominion of our Lord through His children. You see, the Lord, when He created the first earth, gave the dominion of this earth to His first children, Adam and Eve. They lost that dominion. But now God has a plan. That in the new world, the world to come, the kingdom to come, his kids, his children are going to rule and have dominion in that world. Isn't that an amazing thought? And the author of Hebrews talks about this. And he actually quotes a song to prove that this is God's intent. Now, as you read the book of Hebrews, as we're going through it, it's constantly filled with quotations from the Old Testament. That's the reason the book of Hebrews won't open its treasure to lazy Christians. (laughs) You've got to dig in and look up those quotations to connect what the author is saying from the Old Covenant and how it is being fulfilled in Christ in the New Covenant. And so here, to prove his point that the earth has been intended for God's children to rule, he goes back to a song written by David. Look at verse number 6. He quotes a song of David. He's actually quoting from Psalm 8. And it's a direct quote. Verse 6. It has been testified somewhere, and that somewhere is Psalm 8. What is man? There's the key, man. Mankind. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man? Now, the son of man here doesn't mean Jesus, though often it's a title for Jesus. But many times the son of man is just, just means a man, a, a human being. And that's what it means here. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man, a human being, that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. That means that angels are heavenly beings and mankind earthly beings. A little lower in the angels. Not lower in worth, not lower in value, but lower in that human beings are earthly. Angels are heavenly creatures. You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Now, he's quoting David. Here's what was happening in David's life. David was looking up at the stars. He was looking around at the creation. He was absolutely amazed at how expansive and unbelievable the creation of God truly was. And then he says, Lord, 
How can you that created such, a, such things even be mindful of us human beings? And, and beyond that, how can it be that you've made us a little lower than the angels and yet you've put everything under mankind's feet? You have given dominion of the earth to man. And David is quoting there, he's quoting what God did in the creation. You remember Genesis chapter 1, verse 26? What did God say? Let us make man in our image. And we will give to him, let us give to him dominion over all things. David is thinking about that. That God's intention, listen carefully, God's intention for mankind was to have dominion over all that God had created. But now here's the problem. Something's wrong, right? Something's wrong. Because that's not what we see right now. And look at verse 8. That's what, that's what the author says. He says in verse 8, the last part, At present, though, we do not see everything in subjection to him. We, we look around and the earth is not subject to man. We, we look around and we see that there's not a dominion, an orderly rule, but we see that the world is in chaos and revolt. Something has gone dreadfully wrong with God's intention. He created mankind to have dominion over all of his creation, to rule. And yet now the world is full of chaos and there's a revolt even of nature itself, against the rule of man. That's what we see. But now, how many of you know that God's intentions can never be stopped? How many of you know that God's intentions can never be thwarted? Because this, this world is a mess, right? This world's a mess, but never forget, this is our Father's world. And let us never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God still is ruler yet, right? He still is ruler yet. So God has intervened. And that's what we need to know and the author here wants us to know. That God had an intention for mankind. And by sin, mankind ruined what was given to him. But now, God has intervened to restore the order for his children for which he created them, and that's through a plan of intervention. Now, we read about that intervention, verse 8. Now, notice, he's talking about man in verse 6, and you have to carefully follow the pronouns here, okay? Man, him, verse 6, him, verse 7, him. 
under his feet, under his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. All those pronouns have to do with man, mankind. But now there's a change. The pronoun means something else, someone else. What do we see? At present, we do not see everything in subject to him, but we see him. This is a new hymn. Verse 9, if you mark in your Bibles, this hymn is the Son. This is the Son of God. But we see Him who for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God He might, test, he might taste dead for every man. There has been a divine intervention. <laughs> a new man has come. A new him. And the new him is he, the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. There's been a, an intervention. The him here at verse number 9 is referring back to the Son of chapter 1, verse 2. Do you see that all the way back? What's the theme of this writer? Where does he want the focus to be? Look back at chapter 1, verse 2. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his what? Son. The focus is on the Son. And this Son now, chapter 2, verse 9, has for a little while been made lower than the angels. What's this talking about? The incarnation of the Son. The Son was from all eternity past. Equal to God, with God. And yet, He came for a little while to be lower than the angels. What does that mean? He came down where we are, human beings, to be like a human being and be a human being for a little while to be lower than the angels. His name is Jesus. I love to see the progression here. Chapter 1, verse 2. What's he called? The Son. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. What is he called? The Son. Chapter 1, verse 8. What is he called? The Son. Chapter 2. Verse 3 calls him the Lord. And chapter 2, verse 9 says he has a name, and that's Jesus. There's no confusion about who he's talking about. The Son of God, the eternal Son, is the Lord of glory, and he is the man Jesus who for a little while has been made lower than the angels. We see Jesus, the superman, He's above man. He's the Son of God. But He's come like man to be made for a little while lower than the angels so that He might act on behalf of man. Friends, I want you to take a look at Jesus here for a moment. We see Jesus. He says, what do we see? We, we see Him for a little while made lower than the angels. We see Jesus... And when we look to Jesus as the superman who's come to deliver, what do we see? Well, we see him 
wearing the crown. Look at verse 9. Wearing the crown. He's crowned with glory and honor. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Why is he crowned with glory and honor? Why is he wearing the crown? Look, notice, because he was the one who was bearing the curse. Bearing the curse. Verse 9, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Mankind rebelled against God and not only lost the rule of the world, but cursed himself. And what was the curse? The day that you disobey, what did God say? You will surely die. The curse was death. Physical death, spiritual death, eternal separation from God. Jesus, the Son, the Lord, the Superman from heaven, intervened for the sons and daughters of Adam. And on the cross, what did he do? He accepted the curse. He accepted the curse. So we see Jesus wearing the crown because he was bearing the curse. And by bearing the curse, he was sharing the cure. How did he cure our deadly woe? By death itself. Verse 9. Because of the suffering death, isn't this beautiful? So that by the grace of God, we did not deserve this. By the grace of God, he might what? Taste death for everyone. That he might taste death for everyone. Note that word, friend, taste. Where does that take you back in Jesus' life? In the garden, what was racking his heart and soul and what did he pray to God about? Lord, if it is possible, take this cup from me. There was something he was going to drink. There was something he was going to taste. And it was not the physical pain of the cross. It was not the ridicule. It was not the rejection. But what he was going to taste was the curse. He was not just going to taste physical death. He was going to taste all that has brought death to this earth. The curse. He would taste death. Thank God. Jesus lifted that cup and he drank it to the bitter dregs. Amen. He said, thy will be done. What did Jesus do on the cross? Listen, he drank our poison. He drank the poison in your veins, the poison of sin and death. He drank it and he defeated death by death. <laughs> by his own death, he defeated death and proved that he was the champion of life when he rose again from the dead. 
You see Jesus. Who do we see? We see Superman wearing the crown because he was bearing our curse. And by that, he was sharing the cure. But now also, guess who we see? We don't just see the Son. We also see the Father. We see the Father. We see the Father. How could the Father do this? How could this be? That God the Father would send His Son, the Lord, the man, Jesus. What do we see about the Father? Well, we see, here's the Father's plan. Number one, bringing His children home. That's what it's all about. Bringing His children home. Verse number 10. For it was fitting that He... Now, here's another pronoun for you. First pronoun, verses 5, down through verse number 8. That's man. The next him, he, verses, verse 9, that's Jesus. Now this he is God the Father. This is God the Father. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect, through suffering. Oh, my friends, uh, we cannot. <laughs> Here's just one vein of gold in this, this gold might of Hebrews. We could never empty just this one vein of gold in, in our entire lifetime. Because here you see the Father's heart. What was the Father's heart? It's, it's one of the most beautiful expressions of the gospel anywhere in the Bible. What was on the Father's heart? Here's what was on the Father's heart. Bringing many sons to glory. Many children to glory. He wanted His children to be brought back. What had happened at the curse? What had happened through sin? Adam and Eve, mankind... Forced out of the presence of God, away from Eden, away from paradise, no way back because of their sin. But God's the Father's heart was, I want my children to come home. I want my children back with me. I want my children back in paradise experiencing me and me experiencing them. I want the family restored. That was the Father's heart. And so, he knew if the children were going to come back, they needed a perfect guide. They'd never find their way back. They needed a perfect guide. And so we see the father, secondly here, verse 10, making his son their perfect leader. Making his son, Jesus, the perfect leader, for his children to follow home. For it was fitting that he for whom, by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect 
through suffering now. Listen carefully for a moment. The, the, the word here is founder of salvation. It's a very, very unique word. It may be translated in your Bible, leader, or it could be translated captain. But the, the word that's used here is a very, very intentional word. The word is, it's, it's pronounced archegon, archegon. And it means, listen carefully, the word here, founder, captain, leader, it means one who begins something so others can enter. That's what it means. Someone who begins something so others can enter behind him. It's used of someone who builds a building so others can enter. It's used of someone who founds a city so others can enter. It's used of someone who establishes a school so others can enter. It, it could be translated maybe best this way. Pioneer. He made the pioneer of their salvation, one who blazes a trail so others can come behind him. It's translated pioneer. And we have the perfect example of that, don't we? Right here in our region. Don't we have that perfect example? Think about it. Cumberland Gap. 1775. Daniel Boone, a couple of others came through that gap in the mountains where Kentucky, Virginia, Tennessee come together. And they came through that gap and, and blazed a trail. They widened a trail. It was, it was just a, a trail made by uh, the Native Americans for the centuries through there. But they blazed a trail into the frontier. And then Daniel Boone and the others went back for their families and friends and brought them through the Cumberland Gap. It became known as the Wilderness Road and entered into the region of Kentucky and Tennessee. Daniel Boone and his colleagues blazed that trail in 1775 and in the next 35 years, listen carefully, 300,000 settlers came behind them. 300,000 settlers came through the Cumberland Gap because a pioneer, Daniel Boone, had blazed a trail for them. Now, do you see this is perfect of Jesus? Verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory, in bringing them home, the Father made the pioneer of their salvation, the pioneer for the family. He made him perfect, complete, total through the things that he suffered. It means here that Jesus had to come to blaze a trail to blaze a trail through suffering, to blaze a trail through the death on the cross, to blaze a trail in his own blood that he might be the perfect pioneer to bring God's children to the new home. That's exactly what it's saying here. Jesus, for us and for the Father, is the trailblazer. <laughs> he cut through 
The curse, the thorns, the thistles. He cut through the death. He walked through it all. He drank the cup. He experienced the curse so that he might bring God's children home. Now I want you to notice, here's the Lord's intention. As he identifies with mankind, notice he says, he made the pioneer of our salvation perfect. Now listen carefully. Doesn't mean Jesus could be made more perfect. You know why? Because he's perfect. (laughs) And perfect can't have anything added to it. Or anything taken away. So when it says he made the pioneer, the trailblazer, when he made this one who's the founder of our salvation perfect through sufferings, it doesn't mean Jesus was sinful. What it means is that through suffering, Jesus became the one perfectly able to identify with us. He became the one who, like no one else, could bring the family home because he became part of the family. He came here to be with us and to experience what we've experienced so that he could enter into our life and he could bring us to God. He is the perfect pioneer. He sees us as family. This is so beautiful. For he, verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That He who sanctifies, that's Jesus. And those who are being sanctified, that's us. That means being made holy in God's presence. That is why he's not, he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them, us, what? Brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. That's the heart of Jesus. You want to hear Jesus' heart language? You want to hear Jesus' heart language? Verses 12 and 13 are the heart language of Jesus. This is what Jesus feels about us who are his followers. Verse 12 saying... I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given to me. That's family language. Do you see that? He's quoting from Psalm 22 and Isaiah chapter 8. He's he's saying, I identify with the congregation. They are my brothers. I'm going to declare your glory among my brothers. And I'm going to come and bring my children, your children, home with me. This is Jesus' heart language. It's interesting. He's quoting Psalm 22 in verses... 12 and 13, the first sections. Do you know what Psalm 22 is about? 
the suffering Savior, where the Savior cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time that Jesus in his entire life addressed God as God. He always addressed him as Father, but on the cross, he addressed him as God. Why? Because he was the sacrifice and he was cursed. Why have you forsaken me? Here's the question. Why did Jesus endure that? He, he could have spoken the word and legions of angels would have come and rescued him. Why, why did Jesus endure that? You know why he endured it? Because of what he could see. What did he see? What, what, what possibly did Jesus see that could put him on that cross and keep him on that cross? I tell you what he could see. He could see, look at verse 12. He saw brothers. He saw the congregation. He saw the children of God. That's what he saw. What did Jesus see? He saw from the cross. People far from God. People who would never find their way home. And Jesus, as their Savior and as their pioneer, would take them back to the Father. And that's the reason Jesus said this about his death. He said, and I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus would die with his arms outstretched. Bearing with outstretched arms the curse of our sin. The wrath of God we deserve. With arms outstretched embracing the justice of God, but with his arms outstretched, embracing lost sons and daughters and saying, by this, I will draw God's people to myself and I'll take them home. He's Superman. He's Superman. I wonder what do you see? What do you see? You see Jesus saw, but what do you see? Jesus saw you, but have you ever really seen Jesus? January 6th, 1850, January 6th, 1850, 15-year-old boy was trying to get to church in Colchester, England, driving snowstorm. He was trying to get to the church that his family attended from time to time, 
but the storm was so terrible, the snow was so deep, he was trudging down a street called Artillery Street, and he heard some singing, and so he just went in, and it was a little primitive Methodist chapel. Storm was so bad, there's only a handful of people made it, and the pastor didn't even make it. They waited and waited for the pastor. Teenage boy sat in the back row. Steam rising off his wool coat. Very miserable. And finally an old deacon got up and decided he'd do what he could. Verse came to his heart from Isaiah 45. He opened that big pulpit Bible and he read these words. Look unto me. Look unto me. And be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And he started a sermon like this. Well, anybody can understand that. Just look. Look. Look to me, God's a saying. Look to me, he's a pleading. Don't look to yourself. Don't look any way. Look to me, God is saying, and be saved. And then he was moved by the Spirit and he said to the teenage boy, young man, you look very miserable. You look very miserable to me. I want you to look, look, look to Jesus. Look to him. Be saved. Look to Christ. The teenage boy said, I did look. And my eyes were open. And I could see Jesus bearing my sin, being my Savior. In that moment, I did believe. I did see that 15-year-old boy's name was Charles, Charles Spurgeon. And within four years, there was no building in England that could house the people he preached to. By the time he died at 57, 150 million of his sermons were in print. Incredibly used of God as rarely any man ever has but he came to Jesus the same way every single person has to come. You've got to look to him. Look to him. Don't look to yourself. Don't look to your church. Look to Jesus and be saved. He's the pioneer. He will get you home. Follow him. He will take you to the Father.